We may in fact turn the page. Wait, are we? We may not. Hard to tell. I think it's. I want to throw my phone, but I feel like it's rude to the other phones to throw my phone. Like, what if it lands on someone else's phone? And like, mine's broken, but no one else's is. Your phone's broken. My rabbi decided to play soccer with my phone when he was drunk. That's a story that only occurs in Chabad. At a wedding. Just like. There was there was there was there was, there was, there was, there was actually there was, there was there was a couple and they were very concerned because they had a very talented son but he was making some very interesting lifestyle decisions and they were very nervous about him so they wanted to figure out what path he was going to take so they left one afternoon on the table chumash because if he takes the chumash it means he's you know wants to study Torah. And they left a pile of money, if he takes money and want to go into business, and a bottle of vodka, because the maybe he's just going to end up being a drunkard, low life. Oh. And then they hid to see what he would take. He comes home, he sees the three things, looks around to see if anyone's there, no one's there, he grabs all three. That's the way to do it. And um, <laughs> the parent turns himself, so he's going to be a Chabad rabbi. <laughs> okay. That's great. Yeah. Except I don't have that much money. I've never heard a Chabad you know? rabbi tell that joke. I think it's funny. <laughs> like if you can't tell jokes about yourself, then like, I don't know, there's something wrong with you. Um, yes. I actually read a very funny joke. I found it funny. I hope you find it funny. <laughs> <laughs> jokes are, jokes are sometimes context dependent. Yeah. I, I tried to tell my children a joke that acquired a knowledge of what Japanese sounds like, and they didn't find it funny because they don't know what Japanese sounds like. So, Anyway, so the, the joke is that um, the chief rabbinate um, is declared smoking halachically forbidden because it damages one's lungs. Mm-hmm. So the reforms say, well, that's okay, we can continue to smoke because we don't recognize halacha anyway. And the conservatives say, well, the rabbis aren't allowed to smoke because they're the only ones who pretend to keep halacha, but the lay people, they don't keep halacha. And the orthodox people just sold all their lungs to the non-Jews. So... Their lungs to non-Jews. There's a common halachic way of avoiding problems where you sell the thing to the non-Jew oh. and since the non-Jews have to keep halacha, right? Like we sell our chametz to a non-Jew. We, it's, so if, oh, I get it. Right. I get so if you're within you that mindset, yeah, right. okay, that's very funny. Maya, no, but it's funny because like that's the solution to everything. Like I can't, I can't, I can't title this this thing because like whatever. So I'll sell it to the non-Jew. Like it's just the, you know, the workaround to everything in halacha is sell it to the non-Jew. But then why would they, then it, it wouldn't be your That's why it's a joke. That's right. It's not. But you better hope the non-Jew decides not to take it. I don't think so. But you'd have to ask our brackets. Now the joke that I told my kids yesterday was, what do you call a Japanese taxi driver in Israel? I'm sorry. Ishimoto. <laughs> Which is funny because Ishimoto sounds Japanese, but it's just the three Hebrew words, a man with a car. Ishimoto. So my kids are like, yes, the man has a car, but why does it make him Japanese? <laughs> so we were liking the Hebrew knowledge there. So you, need, you, need, you, need, you, need, you need to know both Hebrew and what Japanese sounds like. Yeah, jokes are really very context It's dependent. just when you shove them together, it sounds. Right. Yeah. So, anyway. <laughs> This is why I'm glad I'm not a pulpit rabbi, because my jokes are very hit or miss. Okay, fine. So we have this note. Let's quickly review. Okay. 
So working from the beginning, the revelation of God, God appearing, is like analogized to sunlight. Now, when sunlight is seen as it directly comes off the sun, its effect on people is it blinds them. Similarly, when God is revealed in a direct manner, the absolute simplicity of his being prevents, precludes any reality from coming into existence. But sunlight, when it's seen indirectly, right, like when the sun is behind you or below the horizon by dawn, and shines onto things, it illuminates them. The exact opposite is blinding. So too, when God's light is seen indirectly after this process of, quote, removing God, known as Simpson, then that very same light can create complex reality. And just like light, when it shines through glass, the light appears as the color of the glass, so too, the light of God as it shines through these different um, uh, things called spheres, it becomes like the sphera. And so therefore, if there is a sphera of knowledge, a sphera of essential being, a sphera of some definable essence, and the light of God shines into that, then in that sense we can say God is the knower, the knowledge, and the known. God is the ultimate um, idealized essential being. And then once we speak about God having some sort of defined essence, we can then apply the analogy of fatherhood, where the idea of fatherhood is that giving over the essence of being from the father to the children, so to God gives over that essence of what it is like to be God in that sense from himself as he's revealed in the sphera to the godly soul. And in that sense, the godly soul is a piece of God above. That's a summary, yeah? That was like two weeks worth, one minute. Okay. I could have just said that at the beginning, right? Yeah. Should we have done that? No. Okay. Fine. So now what we're going to do is we're going to read the end of the note. I don't want to spend too much time on it. I want to focus on... I want to focus on um, just some terminology because I think that's helpful. But the, the main idea of the note I think we finished and so we're going to just read through the note from the beginning. Okay? So going back... To two lines before the note, because he. We're on page five or six. Or seven. Six and seven. Okay. Well, I'm five and six. Okay. So, uh, uh, two lines before the note begins, just to get a flow of the idea. Because he and his wisdom are one, as Maimonides says. And remember, Maimonides, the Rambam, says that God has definable essence. Note, and the sages of the Kabbalah have agreed with him. Even though the sages say that God is Ein Sof and has no definable essence, they still agree with the Rambam, as it's stated in the Pardis from Roger Cordovero, just like the colorless light takes on color, so to the undefinableness of God becomes something definitive in the spheros. Also, according to the Kabbalah of the Ari, also who says that actually God's simplicity is so antithetical to reality that there has to be this Simpson process, this is nonetheless substantiated in the mystical concept of clothing the light of the Ein Sof, blessed be he, through the numerous contractions within the vessels of Chabad. Chabad just stands for the spheres of intellect of the world of Atzilus. Okay, that's the one I want to talk about. The world of Atzilus, or if you're reading the English, it says Atzilut, but I'm Ashkenazi. Actually, not Ashkenazi, but I'm Ashkenazi. <laughs> Why would it say Atzilut here, but we pronounce it Atzilus? Because it has a, t- a tough stuff at the end, and the translator decided to go with the tough pronunciation, but 
being Ashkenazi, I'm going to say Atzilus. Okay, fine. So, very, very briefly, this will come back and be helpful later. Yeah. Because it's, it's not directly necessary. This is only relevant if, A, you happen to know of all these complexities and you're like bothered by the fact that the Alter Rebbe uh, in Tanya is using the Maimonides, the Rambam's version of how to explain God in what is supposed to be a mystical, Kabbalistically inclined text. Or alternatively, you're like me and feel it's a good opportunity to expose people to the deeper depth that was unnecessary. <laughs> the deeper depth um, of, of uh, Jewish theology because you find it fascinating and hope some people find it fascinating too. But in strictly speaking, to understand the idea of the chapter, it's unnecessary. And that's true, by the way, of all the notes. Some of the notes will learn and some of them will skip, depending on whether I feel that they, they're good ways of explaining fundamental things or they're just technical stuff that we can you know, overlook because that's why they're notes. Okay, um, if you ask a physicist or a chemist um, what they study, right? There's a certain thing that they study, right? Okay, um, the things that they study they can be measured in terms of in terms of things like mass and velocity, um, in terms of heat, right? They have those kinds of properties, right? Okay, if you ask a a um, social psychologist, what they study, right? They could tell you, and it, but are they measuring things? That they measure? Are they studying things that are that are understood in terms of mass and heat and um, velocity? What are they studying? Things in t- that are understood in terms of social hierarchies, social cohesion, isolation, togetherness. That's what social psychologists study. Um, how different personal tendencies create interact with different cultural norms, right? There's all kinds of things that social psychologists would study, right? Now, both of those are real. They're, they're both reality, right? They're real things interacting in the world in complex ways, right? They're reality. But they're different levels of reality. Does that make sense? Okay. So, in Kabbalah, there are, broadly speaking, what broadly speaking means, it means that it's actually not that. But we're just going to group it into four levels of reality. How many levels of reality are there according to Kabbalah? Infinite. Broadly speaking, we group them into four. But how many are there in actuality? Infinite. Okay. The math people are saying, is this accountable infinity? Okay, no, don't worry about that. Okay. Okay. Now, if you are going to talk about the reality of the spheros in relation to the spheros and understanding the spheros as they interact with the spheros, then the level of that kind of reality is called the world of Atsilus. In other words, to give you a simple analogy, I can either be an object in the larger world, in the sense like I'm teaching you, right? So that's like a social, I can, you know, be like a physical thing that a physicist studies and says, what happens when you drop Rabbit Kaufman off a 10-story building? Let's, let's test the conservation of momentum. Okay. But we could also say, well, well, what if I am the whole reality? What if, we're, what if the study is just going to be my inner life and that's it? The, the boundaries of the inquiry are just my inner life. Then everything that's being studied is just me. But it's still quite complex and rich, right? 
So what if instead of study, what if instead of looking at reality as things created by God and how they interact with each other, or even how God interacts with the things that he created, what if it's just all about how God, different ways that God presents himself, how they relate to other ways God presents himself? But God's not complex. Well, God is not complex, but the spheros, right, going back to that colored light analogy, mm-hmm. the light is colorless, but the glass is different colors, and when the light goes through the glass... It takes on color. It takes on color. And then I use the second analogy. Pure consciousness doesn't feel like anything. But when consciousness goes through different parts of the body, it comes different kinds of experiences. And are those experiences rich and complex? Mm-hmm. Okay. So when we speak about the world of Atsilos, that's not talking about something God created. That's talking about a complex and rich way God can be presented and experienced. But post-Sephirot God? It's... Right. Oh, yeah. post or to put it very simply, Hashem as he appears through the spheros. But that is a very rich and complex world. And that's the world that Kabbalists really like to talk about. Like the, main, the main world they're interested, the main level of reality they're interested in is the world of Atsilas. So if you ask a Kabbalist, why do we put on tefillin? You're going to get an answer about something happening in at this world called Atsilas. Okay? To give you that as an analogy, right? If you were to ask uh, me why I do something, I could give you an answer that is entirely self-referencing my own psychology. Why I value things and what it does for me, right? Just all in terms of my own personal experiences. Or I could give you answers that don't necessarily relate directly to me. I could speak about, um, you know, that doing this is important because it brings Mashiach, or doing this is important because like, it helps pay the bills in the bank or take away my house. But I can speak about things that are entirely within my personal subjective experience, or I can speak about things in a broader sense. So when Kabbalists speak about the world of Atsilos, what are they speaking about? A, le- a, a level of reality where everything in that level of reality is just another way God's light is experienced, and how those different ways of God's light being revealed and experienced interact with each other. As opposed to the created realities of angels and people and the sun, the moon, the stars, demons. Yes, there's demons. Those are other levels of reality. Okay. This is, the reason why I'm mentioning this now is because um, since this word shows up from time to time in Tanya, I think it's helpful to have just a running definition of what we mean by the world of Atsilos. It's not like a planet. It's not like an idea. It is a real layer of existence, but a layer of existence where all the things in that existence are just different ways God is presenting himself or experienced interacting with other ways God has revealed or experienced. No, no non-godly entities. Yeah? Um, I'm just, I was looking back in one of our classes in JST, we talked about the four worlds, mm-hmm. and we said that, that the zero the didn't come about come into like three gods, there's the Hawkeye and Dawson, and zero that there was a more emotional zero. So, I don't like like talking about what other people's classes are because I wasn't there. Broadly speaking, different of the other worlds have themes drawn from Atsilus. So the world known as Asiya is thematically connected to the sphere of Malchus. The world of Yitzir is thematically connected to the six, quote, emotional spheres. The world of Bria is connected specifically to the sphere of Bina. And Atsilus is connected thematically to the to the sphere of Chachma. That being said, all the spheres are actually in Atsilus. Could we 
ditch and die? Yeah, for right now. Okay. So for our purposes here, when it says the world of Atsilas, the world of Atsilas means what? It means there's no angels, there's no people, there's no anything. All there is is that God is being manifest or experienced or presented in a rich and complex way as opposed to a simple way. And that's possible because the light is in some sense detached from the source, right? Like the sunlight where the sun is behind you. And it's going through the colored glass, the filters that give it a richness or a complexity. Yeah. Is there anything about like the root of Vatsila, like the word itself? It's like yes. itself being yes. by something? Okay. Yeah. The word, the word, the word has two basic connotations. Etzel means next or close to, but an etzel also means extracted or separated out from. So, for instance, have you guys ever taken challah? Mm-hmm. So, the Hebrew word for taking challah, I don't know what the Hebrew word for taking challah is. A fridge, right? Where you have this large thing, you take something, extract it out. Okay. So, lahatzil is actually a synonym for lafrish. To separate? To separate something out. So it has this connotation of you're separating something out, but also the connotation of the same thing of being next to and adjacent. And the idea is that there is this very specific um, way in which God is being experienced in its seals. It's very, um, you know, it's rich, it's complex, right? And it's not the entirety of everything that God is, but at the same time, it still remains attached and connected to God. And so the word actually... The reason why it's called the seals is it conveys both of those meanings. It's you're taking something specific out of the totality of God, so to speak, but at the same time, it's not being totally detached, like say the created world where you have en- other entities with other ideas and other agendas. Okay. So it's still next to. Right. Yes. So a very simple analogy is like this: kindness in our world is a feature of us. I have kindness. You have kindness. Yeah. Maybe even institutions can be kind. That's an interesting question, right? But in Atsilas, kindness is a description of God. Okay? It's the way God is experienced. It's the way God is ex- revealed. Okay? And obviously there's a relationship between his kindness and our kindness. Okay? So now what is this saying? It's saying that we speak about when the Ram says that God is the, the knower and the knowledge. God is this ultimate essential being. That's true in as much as the light is clothed in the vessels of Chabad, which are the intellectual aspects of the spheres in the world of Atzilus. But no higher than that. For as explained elsewhere, the ancient philosophy is infinitely exalted over and transcends the essence and level of Chabad, which in relation to him are regarded as a material action, as is written, thou hast made them all with wisdom. Meaning when you compare the way God is experienced or perceived in Atzilus versus a rock, which one is a more accurate depiction of the, the Ein Sof. Which one is a more accurate depiction of what God truly is? And the answer is neither. So you have this, you have this interesting trade-off. On the one hand, and we use numbers to illustrate this. What's closer to infinity? One or a million? Neither. Neither. Okay. Why not a million? What? Why not a million? Okay. It's a very good question. And the answer is like this. Will you agree that determining what number is closer to another number, I can figure out by subtraction? So, for instance, if I start with 10, yeah. and I subtract, and I want to know if 8 or 6 is closer to 10, well, I say, okay, well, I only subtract 2 from 10 to get to 8, but I have to subtract 4 from 10 to get to 6. Sure. 
right? That makes sense? So that means because I have to subtract more from 10 to get to 6, that means 6 is further away than 8. Yeah, should be very simple. Okay. How much do I have to subtract from infinity to get to 1? Infinity. How much do I have to subtract from infinity to get to a million? Infinity. In that sense, 3 clearly removed. Because there's, there's, in terms of, in terms of what is actually separating, so to speak, one from infinity and a million from infinity is the same thing, is that they're both limited and infinity is not limited. So is there not an actual concept of like some infinity quantities being larger than other there infinity is, quantities? There is, there is, but, but, but one in a million doesn't have anything to do with that. There is. Okay. No, but like there's... Are you thinking of like an asymptote, like what point is like Okay. The one, but but that's a different idea. Okay, now I want to move from numbers to something qualitative. Okay. How many beetles equals one person? And I mean that in the moral sense, not in terms of mass. I realize that there is a number of beetles which equals the mass of a person. How many beetles are morally equivalent to one human being? Not any. Not any, right? Adding more beetles does not make it any like whatever the moral significance of a human being has, right? Adding more beetles does not like equally bound. So if we're going to get rid of all the beetles, what that would mean is if there was a question of all things being equal, it was only the beetles. Don't get to me about how ecology and the beetles are necessary in the whole world. Just the beetles. It's a thought experiment. If it was getting rid of all the beetles or saving one person, if you follow what you just said, then... Kill the beetles. You kill the beetles. That's <laughs> a new slug. Okay. You're now. <laughs> now. <laughs> Which is, by the way, the Torah's view on the matter. Okay, in reality, it's more complicated, right? We're not killing all the beetles. Plus, there are too many of them. It's just not physically possible to kill all the beetles. Okay. That's why I picked them. They're the most numerous uh, animal species. Yes. Okay. Now, how many people are morally equivalent to one person? This is, I'm asking you from the perspective of Judaism. Because I teach you Judaism. One person. How many people are morally equivalent to one person? Like, if I have a moral consideration and I have to say, like, what's more important, caring about this or caring about that? Like, the, the most extreme example is, let's, you know, killing, killing one to save the other, killing the other to save the one. But you are measuring the morality of one. The moral worth. How much they count in my moral calculations. Why? Like, like, destroying this cup has very little, this cup has very little moral worth. You know, destroying this cup... If it's at, done as an act of just wanted destruction, it, it, it does have some moral worth to it because it, it, does, it exists in God's world. But it's not the same as, say, for instance, killing a person or for that matter, even, even, even harming a person. The destruction of the cup, it, the cup has so little moral worth relative to the person that even mildly harming a person is a much more grievous infraction than destroying the cup. So I'm asking you, if you have one person how many other people need equally to balance that one person? The answer is, one person is equal to an infinite number of people. What does that mean? How many people's lives do I have to be saving in order to justify killing one person, according to Jewish law? Infinite. There is no matter. No matter how many people's lives you are saving, that does not justify ever killing one person. One person. Is that one Jew? Right now, to make it simple, because right now to make it simple, in Jew non-Jew alike. But there is. 
that gets into all sorts of technical nuances, such as are we talking about times of war? Are we talking about this? But uh, but if you abstract a moral principle in general, yes, you cannot kill even one non-Jew in cold save blood to save ten Jews. Correct. If it's a cold-blooded murder, yeah, you can't. It gets more complicated. It's a non-Jew endangering lives of the Jew. I'm saying, if it's just the pure, the more worth of them. So this is already very interesting, right? No amount of beetles equals one person, but no amount of people also equal one person, but for very different reasons, right? The reason is because the beetles are worthless relative to one person, right? But one person's worth is so absolute and it can't be measured, so even having many people doesn't make a difference. Okay? And Because if you say one person is equal to one person, is two more than one? So then two people are worth more than one person, but that's not correct, Judaism. Two people are not worth more than one person. So it turns out one person is equal to, and it, right, which does the weird stuff with your math. This way of giving people moral significance in their calculations is stems from the idea that a person has something divine in them. And here I'm, I'm turning to Jew and non-Jew alike right now. Just, so because there's a, a, every, every Jew, Jew, every person, Jew and non-Jew like is created in the image of God. It's not the same thing as having godly soul, but for our purposes right now. So, just one second. So, the value, the significance of a human life means that everything that isn't a human life, say the Beatles, is worthless relative to it, no matter how much of it you have. But that value is also so absolute and so intrinsic, it can't even be viewed quantitatively relative to other human lives. You can't say that you have that more people outweighs fewer people. That's how Judaism works. So you, we do not kill the one to save the many. Okay. Now, does that make sense? I mean, not, I'm asking if you agree, but do you understand like that's what, okay, now. But is it fair to say that more people are morally... <laughs> there's a difference between people and beetles, right? If there's one person's life, yeah? And I say that this one's person's life, no amount of people measure this person's life, no amount of, these peop- no amount of people can, can out- counterbalance that person's life, and no amount of beetles can... But for very different reasons. The reasons that the beetles are relative to one person are worthless... Is that because, is that the same thing with people? Is that people, everybody else is worthless relative to this one person? No. It's because this one person's worth is so absolute that even having many, many, many more people doesn't really take, doesn't really take away or counterbalance his one worth. And so what this idea here is saying is like this. Are the spheres more godly than a rock? Yes, because the spheres are expressions of God and the rock is just a rock. It's just a thing. It's a concealed expression of God. Not for right now. Right now, it's just a rock. A rock is a rock, and a revelation of God is a revelation of God, and they're not the same thing. And in that sense, there's a huge difference. But now, if I'm going to ask you, how many rocks equal God? Like, when do you have enough rocks that you get something that's equivalent, that's equivalent, that is as significant, as important, as meaningful, and as deep, as true, whatever words you want to use as God? No. Okay. How much, and this we spoke about yesterday in the yesterday's class, how much of God being revealed or being perceived ever really gets to the truth of God? So if you're, if, you're, if you're talking about the truth of God, the greatest revelation in Iraq are on some level the same. Does that mean that they're actually the same in every way of looking at it? No. No. 
Right? What this means is that we have to be more mature about notions of hierarchy. Something can be on top of the chain in one sense, but no closer in another sense. More people in some sense, people are more important than beetles, and more people in some sense is like more people than, that's more than fewer people. But when you really get down and you talk about one person's life, one person's life has such an absolute intrinsic value that no amount of beetles or people really counter, are a countervailing force against that. And that person's life has an intrinsic worth that cannot be compromised for any reason, barring all that's fine print. In a similar sense, when we talk about the Ein Sof, or what the Ein Sof, the unknowable being of God for what he really is, the revelations of God through the spheres are no more a complete picture of him than a rock is. But it is true that a sphere is, a, is a, entirely a godly manifestation and a rock is just a rock. And so is the sphere closer to God than a rock? And the answer is in some sense, yes. And in some sense, no. Okay. I would like to give you a very simple analogy to this. What is closer to me? How I feel about my children or what they eat for breakfast? Closer to me. What is, what is, that's a good question. Right? In what way? So if I say in the sense of what do I find more meaningful? What do I find affects me more? How I feel about my children or what they eat for breakfast? Okay, that would make sense. In fact, to whatever degree that how they for breakfast affects me still is mediated through how I feel about them, right? So clearly, like, they're interconnected. they're interconnected and one depends on the other and the other doesn't depend on the first. So it's clearly that way. On the other hand, right, I had a life for 20-something years before I was a parent. Really? Yeah. <laughs> what? I said, really? Yeah. <laughs> and I was still me then, right? So in some sense, I can be me in a way that like what my non-existent children do or do not eat for breakfast and my non-existent do or don't make me feel because they don't exist, like is irrelevant because I was me even without their existence. So in that sense, if I think about it in that much deeper sense, which one's closer to me? And the answer is neither. Because neither. on some fundamental level, I was me independent of them. Yikes, don't tell them that. <laughs> well, this is, this is actually an important thing to realize. Not when they're little, but it's one thing to realize when you're when it's one thing to realize as you become an adult. Because if you want to actually have a relationship with your parents, that's an actual relationship with them as people. You have to realize that they were not, did not come into being as your mother or your father. They are the people who had their own lives, and then, as a important aspect of their life, but they became your parents. And so, if you want to relate to them, you have to see that they are not just limited to being parents. your parents. And on some level, they had an existence which was real and true before you even came around, before there was even a thought of you. And when you can recognize that, you actually can have a much more mature relationship with your parents. Of course, that's an adult relationship with the parents. Child, children, yeah, that would like mess you up if you, <laughs> you tell that to little kids. They don't even know the teachers live outside of school. Right, this is the, this is the extreme <laughs> version of that, right? Yeah. yeah. Is, a, is there a hierarchy of closeness to God in people? Like a tzaddik is closer to God than a Benoni or... Oh, oh that's exactly... That's exa so, so although here it's talking about the concept of spheres and rocks, we're going to get into this in many, many different ways. In the part of... In chat, I'm setting this angel for chapter two. The rest of chapter two. Or second. 
part of chapter two. But it's, you have to stop thinking of things in terms of black and white, like it's higher or it's lower. It could be higher in one sense and equivalent in another sense. Because it's so complex. Though. Right, because of the idea of complexity. Okay? So in the case of spheros, because nothing is truly captures God, so in that sense, God is equally removed from the highest revelations as he is from a rock, but in the sense that the revelations are revelation of him and a rock is just a rock, in that sense, the revelations are closer to God than the rock. And you have to kind of be able to hold both perspectives in your mind, at least, I don't want to say simultaneously, but at least flat back and forth for relatively quickly. Otherwise, you'll get yourself confused. Yeah? Uh, going back to the lives versus lives, so in Jewish morality then, like in the case of the trolley problem? That's what easy. That's easy. You always do, the, the case of the trolley problem is in all cases, do nothing. Unless, in all, okay, unless we add some other compl- complicating factors, like one of the people is trying to kill one of the other people or something like that. But if we, if, you know, what if, is if, that problem? The problem is that you have a trolley going down a train track and is going to kill some oh, somebody like people. people. And you have the ability to move the train and have it kill other people. Less amount or different kinds of people. Use it to test morality. So that the, the, yeah, the, 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 all things being equal in the sense no one's trying to kill anybody else no one is liable for death ahead of time nothing like that then yeah it's very simple you just do nothing to my knowledge no I could be wrong about that but to my knowledge no you do nothing you do nothing the reason very simply is like this the reason very simply is this it is a it is a sin to murder and you're not allowed to you're not allowed to like murder in order to save someone's life it's not a sin to stand idly by the blood of your brother or whatever that quote is that is but we have a general we have we have we have a general principle where we differentiate between active and inactive things okay, we're using yeah. that if someone jumps off the building and then the second person chops off their head yes but then you're pulling the levers and is that person killing them yeah because you move the train to kill those people I mean, if you want a disturbing example of this, and then we'll move on, um, there was a whole issue during the Holocaust, which is what if you could, what if you could pay a bribe to get your loved ones off the list? Are you allowed to do it? And the basic answer to that is no, because by doing so, somebody else gets on the list. Yeah. Again, there are fine print complicating factors, but if you talk about like the basic like conception, the, 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 the intrinsic value of the human life is not measured in terms of other human lives. So more human lives don't counteract one human life. You don't have an obligation to your family to save them rather than someone else? You do, you do. The question is that uh, the question is how do we the question the question becomes if it's a choice between saving person A and saving person B, but there's not a choice. This is a choice of someone who would have otherwise lived, and you're going to cause them to die to save your relative. It's different. Anyway, not. I only brought this brought that up to so the idea that when you start thinking of things in terms of more and less and infinite, you run into this need to, to have different perspectives. You can't just think of it as a, as a top of a chart and a bottom of a chart, and that's the end of it. No. Okay. All right. Fine. Ending the note. Okay, so the Maimonides said he is the knower and the knowledge and the knower, 
And this is not within the power of any being to comprehend clearly, meaning can we comprehend what it means that God is the knower and the knowledge? The answer is yes, but not clearly. clearly, right? Meaning we can understand what it, we can understand it by comparing and contrasting with our own knowledge as we did like two weeks ago or something. Did, did we explain why the quote is brought at the end of the note, that you've made them all with wisdom? How that uh, because, because the idea of making, the Hebrew word for making implies physical action. And wisdom is the idea of the highest sphere. And you see that those two things are being equated. If you look in the Hebrew, asiya means the idea of physical stuff happening. So the fact that the, fact that he, the verb made implies physicality, but the method implies the highest sphere, and it shows that they're being equated. That's just a simple meaning. Okay. As it is written, canst thou search by finding God? By search, canst thou by searching find God? I mean, you can search for God, but you'll never fully find him because our minds can't grasp him. And it's also written, my thoughts are not your thoughts. I love this quote, by the way. I'll explain to you why. Um, have you ever tried explaining yourself to a small child? You should do so. It's a fascinating experience. Not explaining things to a small child on their liver, explaining yourself. You ever done that? that? What do you mean explaining yourself? No, like whatever, like stuff that, the way like, for instance, if you were to ask me like a question about why do I teach here, right? I could like explain it to you and like we'll talk about what my motivations are and blah, blah, blah. Now try explaining that to a five-year-old. Do you ever observe parents? No, no. Do you ever observe parents where children ask questions and you see the parents just like not want to answer? Have you ever Mm -hmm. seen that? Do you know why? Because the parents have experience. And they realize that when the words come out of the parents' mouth, the children have no sense of what they're talking about. And as they try to make it sensible to the child, it's no longer what the parent actually thinks. I remember when one of my kids asked me um, something about like, the Israeli political system. And it's like one of these things that's like, very obvious. You understand that like, politics has a certain level of like, built-in corruption to it. It's like fairly obvious. So I don't remember the exact details. But he heard in school that something had happened. And like, why did they do that? And I, and I have to explain to like my six-year-old the concept of corruption. And it's like, I really, like this is not, this is not going to work. Because his mind just doesn't have the same way of processing reality. A, a child's mind is not a miniature version of adult mind. It's a different thing. It's, just, it's different. Now, does that mean you can't explain anything? You can't explain a lot of stuff. But it's different, okay? One thing the Rebbe always pointed out, children don't understand the idea of compromise. I don't mean compromise in the sense of like, I get half the cake and you get half the cake. Compromise in the sense of compromising on a principle or on a value. If you tell a child something is wrong, then what does that mean? It's wrong. And therefore, everyone who does it is? Bad. Bad. And people who are good never do it. That's how children process, little children process reality. You, you can like, not like it, but that's just the way they are. So. Now you're faced with a difficult choice, which is, if you want your children to think something is wrong, you can't compromise on it. Even though as an adult, you could maybe justify and rationalize why a little compromising will compromise work. Because by doing so, your children will immediately pro- take that in. Okay, so what that means is that's not really an absolute bad. And if it's not an absolute bad, it means it's not really bad at all. It's just, it's inconvenient. People don't like it from time to time. But there's no thing, that's just how little brains work. My father said that's why he became observant, is because I asked him why he wears a keeper for the Rebbe. He decided he can't live like that. That's actually my, my father. My, so my grandparents never became fully religious, but they became much more traditional. 
Um, and apparently the story goes is that my, my, they sent my father to Sunday Hebrew school and he came back home and he asked my grandmother, what's milchiks and fleshiks, which is Yiddish for what's meat and dairy. And um, she was so shocked that her own son didn't know what meat and dairy was. That, like they thought you're supposed to separate them because like she, she was aware of that. And he, and my father was like, five, six, took this like very seriously. Like the, like the teacher said, we have to separate the milk and the flesh and what does that mean? And like, she's like, and she's like, I can't tell him like it's not important. So I guess I have to start keeping it separate. And from that point on, even though they didn't keep like strictly everything kosher, but they kept separate meat and dairy. Um, so there is this wonderful feedback that children, you know, one thing that happens, I think, to your children is that sometimes you, they, they pick up very quickly that if, when you make a bracha, you should actually make the bracha properly or they're making brachas aren't important. Because they don't have this compromising idea. But then that serves as a good feedback for you to remember that you should probably be more careful about. So anyway. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, children become adults. Adults used to be children. So the difference between them is not that great. Now imagine explaining yourself to an aunt. Good listening. What? <laughs> right, like that, that's, that's just a ridiculous proposition, right? right? Fundamental notions... Like, of reality that we have don't exist by the ant, and that the ant has don't exist by us. Like, like assuming the ant has some sort of an awareness, just for argument's sake, the idea of being an individual being doesn't... <laughs> and what it means to not be an individual, like, like, so we can't even begin to process. Okay? That's why if you make a movie about, like, ants, and you anthropomorphize the ants, like, the theme is always going to be the fact that the individual ant has to find their own personal identity amongst the hive. But real ants don't ever have that, because real ants aren't individuals. And we are, by, we are, we are no matter how collectivist of a society we live in, we have some element that always has a sense we're an individual. So, like, we really cannot communicate our inner experiences to ants. Now go one step further. How about you and an angel? Well, an angel doesn't have a physical reality altogether. So its notion of like what, what it is and why it does things is like completely alien to us. Okay, now we're now about something that is created. It depends on something other than itself and God. What point of commonality do you have exactly? Zero. So how much sense would it make to think that we could understand God? Zero. Wait, but we do have commonality somewhere deep inside of us. Well, Kabbalah would say we have commonality in as much the fact that God reveals himself in forms that are relatable to us, but those are not really, truly himself. But he understands us. That's the cool part. Don't, don't we have a piece of God? That he understands us. Oh, so, 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 so. This is all talking about in as much as God is the creator and we're the creation. Once we introduce the idea of a godly soul, then that would, that would fall apart. And that's actually something the altar was going to draw on later on, is that in as much as we have a godly soul, this idea that we cannot really grasp him is not 100% true. It's true in as much as we approach God as a creation of God, as a creature of God, made by God. Okay. I find this a very like, intriguing thing to think about, about how truly alien God is from the human mind. Intriguing or confusing? Intriguing. Like the thing that I don't understand and it seeks me to ask further questions. And when I get answers and things start to make sense, that leads to further questions. Do things start to make sense about it? Yeah, it's never ended.
Do you ever get answers, really? You get answers, but answers leads more questions. It has a, it has, or it's, or, 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 and this is the way it's put it, this is the way it's put in a lot of religious literature. It's romantic, because it's romantic. The more you get to know somebody, the more that you realize how much of a mystery they are, which more intrigues you, and then you get to know more about them. And But then eventually you just run away because you're, like, tired of not figuring it out. No. No. Like, science is like that. Like, It's exactly like that. Any field of study. You can you can learn something and be like, oh, I know that my husband loves cheesecake, and like I know that, and like sure, but then I want to know more about. Why does he love cheesecake? What is cheese? No, or like, why does he love cheesecake? Because he had cheesecake when he was growing up, and then and then that becomes a discussion about his youth. But then and that's how. Yeah. But eventually, it's like. Or maybe it's nothing to do with Shavuos. Shavuos was the only times his parents weren't fighting. Right, and then you have a really interesting discussion, right? You see how that's what I mean. It's like one thing can become something totally different as you get an answer. Yeah, but eventually, isn't it just like okay, I've tried hard enough, like I'm not gonna understand you? You like, can do because, that. No, because it's so confusing how infinite God is that, like, Maya is saying, like, the, what's that one? The answer. You gotta be more what's that? You're like following a trail, you're not trying to understand everything at once. They are. God just is. Four has no grandparents. God just is. Okay. The, 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 one, the, the one, I don't know, concession I'm willing to make is that if that is the only aspect of your relationship with someone slash something, then it's going to burn itself out. Meaning to know them is what... The, the unending quest to know them. That, can, that is an important aspect, and it's one that provides a lot of energy and passion, but it can't be the only thing. It's like it has its, it's kind of has its quality of being inherently unstable and burns itself out. You need to have other things I mean okay fine so now we have a godly soul yeah. okay I'm going to ask you a question how many kinds of God are there he is one he is one <laughs> there's, there's how many kinds of God are there one. none <laughs> uh, none answers Okay, so the simple answer is one, the deeper answer is none, but the answer is certainly not many because that would be like... He has many parts. He doesn't even have as many parts. He maybe has many different Express. ways of revealing himself, but he is one. Okay, so how many, how many kinds of godly souls therefore should there be? One. How many kinds of godly souls in fact are there? Look in the side. Look inside. And though there are myriads of different gradations of souls... The wood in there. <laughs> well, Hannah, Hannah, you're right. By the way, a myriad is a specific Very number. A myriad is 10,000. What? 10,000. 10,000. Just as a. What? So tens of thousands. I will tell no, you. No, tens of thousands. Myriads. No, so, so, so I'll explain. I'll explain. I'll explain. Wait, wait, wait. This is like nice parenthetical information you know about Judaism. Okay. In English, we have, we have a number. We have a word one. We have a word ten. We have a word hundred. We have a word a thousand. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay, do we have a word for the next order, mag- order of magnitude? No, we don't. We just then say 10,000, 100,000. But then the next order of magnitude, we have a word. We call it? Million. A million, right? You see that some orders of magnitudes have words and some don't? Mm-hmm. Okay. In Hebrew, not modern Hebrew, but the classical Hebrew of the Tanakh and the rabbis, that the whole, which is not exactly the same, but there is, there is echad, which is one. There's Eser, which is ten. There is Mea, which is there is Elef, which is a thousand, and there's Revova, 
Revava is 10,000. Now, the word Revava is related to the word Rav, which means a lot. And therefore, the standard translation of Revava is a myriad. The English word myriad does not have a fixed order of magnitude, but the Hebrew word revava actually literally means 10,000. And therefore, whenever it says myriads and myriads, it really means 10,000 upon 10,000. It's like saying millions and millions. And that actually becomes significant sometimes because sometimes it says revava, it actually means exactly a revava. It's like sometimes when we say million, we actually mean a million. And sometimes we say a million, we just mean a lot. Okay. So that's what the word revava means. Okay. Little background stuff. Okay, so there are myriads of different gradations of souls, rank upon rank. Ad infinitum. So apparently, there's myriads and myriads and myriads, but how many do the myriads keep going? Infinitely. Infinitely. So we're meaning it here like when people say I have a million things to do. What? We are now turning the page. See? Yeah, Hannah! You're not going to be able to close your book now. <laughs> It'll still At work. At this rate... <laughs> At this rate, I don't know if the book will be able to stay open. If you keep doing that, it'll, it'll just like fold back on itself. Okay. Watch this. It still works. Okay. So. It's my notes. To make this simple, what I'm going to do is I'm going to. This is a question. The question is if the godly souls are really a part of God and God is one, then there should only be how many kinds of godly souls? One. But in fact, there are. Myriads of myriads ad infinitum, different kinds of godly souls. What does ad infinitum mean? It means go on forever. Why can't it just say infinite Yeah. Because they're ranked. They're built on themselves. Yeah. It's not just that God made a lot. He actually... And, and, and that's actually what we're going to get into. So that's a question. We will get to the answer eventually. How can godly souls all be godly? And there's only one God. So there's only one kind of thing to be godly. At the same time, the souls are very different. They're, they're distinct, ranked, ordered with a hierarchy. Higher upon higher upon higher upon higher. Before we do that, we are going to look at how the souls are ranked. How the souls are different from each other. And this difference is hierarchical. Hierarchical means some are on the top and some are where? On the bottom. Now... Let's, and, some and some can be on the same level, yes. Okay, now, I want to tell you, talk a little about hierarchies before we learn about the actual specific hierarchies. Yes, you have a question. Yes, for those of us in Rabbi Shapiro's Hasidus class, we've been talking about three different kinds of souls, a Ben, an Evid, and like an Evid who's joyful. Mm-hmm. How does that fit in with this concept? Those, that's discussed later in chapter 41. Let's put it that way. That's more discussing how service I'm getting it, it, it may parallel, it may be different, and we'll talk about it later. Okay, so for now we're holding them as two separate concepts in our mind? Yes. As a general rule, whenever you're learning something, every other class is a separate concept until otherwise clearly stated. That's a good learning technique. But it's also good to make connections. It is. The problem is, is that you're predisposed to make connections that either A, don't belong, or B, oversimplify and actually that prevents your learning in the future. It is always better to be rather conservative and assume that there isn't a connection than to work the other way and assume there is a connection. Eventually you get so much information that the connections just are, 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 are self-evident. Um, that's the best way to learn. It also requires the most mental discipline. Chapter 41? Yeah. 41. Okay. Five years. <laughs> Five years? I don't know. 
As I have a notorious habit of not moving very quickly. <laughs> it's not about the destination. Didn't notice that. That's right. It's well, the long short route. I did tell you in the beginning of the class. Route. I don't know. I have this bad thing that I like. People, I like to really thoroughly understand everything. So it just takes longer. Okay. I know. <laughs> but How is that not... Because how is that not a... It's, <laughs> no, so it's the opposite. Is that I can thoroughly understand God in some sense or from some perspective or some context. And then as I go a little bit deeper, it collapses. And then I get the joy of trying to thoroughly understand yet again. And it's like an infinite roller coaster ride. Yes? In terms of ranking, yes. There can be other differences, but we're going to talk about ranking, and in that sense, yes. You could have things that are broadly speaking. Like in the military, like two people who are both captains are the same rank. It doesn't mean that in every respect they're the same. But we're going to talk about that. Okay. I like to talk about hierarchies. You can do that. Okay. And I will, because I'm in charge. Oh, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> Or at least that's what I'm led to believe. <laughs> I was gonna say it's a okay. thing, but <laughs> Okay. 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 There is a kind of hierarchy which exists in the world that Judaism considers to be fundamentally evil. Okay, especially in Kabbal- from the perspective of Kabbalah Chassidus. This kind of hierarchy is fundamentally evil, and I want to talk about what it is and why it's evil, and then go on to say that not every hierarchy is like this kind of a hierarchy. This is called a hierarchy of power, which means if you're at the top of the hierarchy, you have more power, and if you're at the bottom of the hierarchy, you have no power. You are powerless. Okay? Now, What do I mean by power? Okay. I'm using power in a very specific way, and I mean the ability to impose on others. So for instance, okay, um, I don't want to pay my mortgage the bank wants me to pay my mortgage, if that comes to a head, who's going to win? The bank. The bank? Yeah, probably the bank. <laughs> or alternatively, or alternatively, I will suffer tremendously. Is that winning? I don't know if that's winning, right? <laughs> right. The bank, had, the, bank can punch, the, the bank can simply punch me, what, you know, metaphorically speaking, much harder than I can punch the bank, and so in that contest, I lose. Okay? The what? That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you run away from the bank, because you can rob the bank and run away. Okay. No, but in this scenario, you have to willingly go into a relationship with the bank. Wait, 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 wait. I'm not talking about banks are bad. That's not was not my point. Okay. Now. Okay. How do we know? Okay, a good way of thinking of this is how do we know that society is breaking down? There's a very good measure you can use society to break down. How many people do you have to hit, whether physically or metaphorically, to get them to do what they're supposed to do? So when societies are really collapsing, how do you get people not to steal? And how do you get people not to assault each other? How do you get people to behave in an orderly manner? You take out the army, and they stand there, and people don't behave. They start hitting them. 
or they threaten to hit them. But what does that mean? Uh, that, yeah, that's when societies are really collapsing. <laughs> it's very dangerous. Okay? Yeah. That's, no, why, that's the concept that, that's why most co- countries have a concept that they don't like to use or hopefully they don't like to use called martial law. Martial law? Yeah. I'm not saying this is a good thing, but now in a normal, healthy social arrangement, right? Why am I not stealing? Is it because that I am afraid that if I steal, a policeman will see me and will do something to me, and therefore I shouldn't steal? Or there, uh, or get like I uh, like my inhibitions to steal are way before that point. Hopefully, before that point, right? Okay. Let's now move to moving the home, right? Is the reason why you should not assault a family member is because that family member can punch you back harder. Like if that's the level of why you're not hitting a family member, there's something very wrong, right? Okay, which means that if the ability to impose, to use, to use some kind of coercive force is the thing keeping everything intact, that I, have, I can, you know, you know, using this as just a standard. I can hit you harder than you can hit me, therefore you do what I say as opposed to me doing what you say. If that's the bottom line of the whole relationship, that kind of hierarchy is viewed as fundamentally evil. Okay, why is that viewed as fundamentally evil? The reason why it's viewed as fundamentally evil is because it basically, it, it, it basically means that there's no unity. Judaism is very into unity. There's nothing really binding them together. In other words, even if you have a whole system, a whole organization, but if it works like that, a whole society works like that, it's really, you, it's really everybody's against everybody else. It's just the more powerful person intimidates the less powerful people, and the medium powerful people intimidate the powerless, and then that's that. But everybody's really against everybody else. It's, it, there's really, it's all conflict. Now, are there, there are other kinds of hierarchy. For instance, what's happening right now? I'm teaching. So in the classical way of thinking of that, who's on the top of the hierarchy? I am. Yes. Who's at the bottom? You are. But is that really that I have like power? Is that really what's going on? No. no. Right. You have a desire to learn, and I have a desire to teach, and therefore we mutually appreciate connecting to each other. Right? And so in terms of the flow of knowledge, it's going from me to you, although there is some interesting feedback. You ask questions, it makes me think about things, right? But let's oversimplify it for now. But it's not one of power. In fact, if it becomes one of power, the degree of power becomes irrelevant here, what happens to the actual teaching hierarchy? Okay, so I also teach 18-year-old boys. So the more disciplining I have to do, which is getting into the power thing, what happens to the actual idea that I have wisdom and they're interested in learning it, I'm interested in teaching it, that gets crowded out. Okay, so hierarchies can exist. A hierarchy exists anytime there's a differential between haves and have-nots, and that actually Judaism sees as a very good thing. Why? Because if the haves have the sense that they should share, and the have-nots have the sense that they should receive, whether that's wisdom or money or time or whatever it is, then what does that do? It brings people together. So hierarchy is a feature of what brings people together. This actually says in the Talmud, I'm a Kabbalistic idea. Why are there, why are there poor people? Because if everyone was, had the same exact amount of financial resources, then everybody would just do what? Their own thing. Their own thing. But if I have more money than I need to eat to provide my food and shelter, and you need money for food and shelter, then what does that do? Brings you together. It brings you together. Okay. I don't like that. Wait, I know. What's, what's this hierarchy brings people? 
I know, I know people don't like this. This is like a really disturbing idea. The reason why it's a really disturbing idea is because what piggybacks on every hierarchy, whether it's a financial hierarchy or wisdom hierarchy, a morality hierarchy, a life experience hierarchy, what piggybacks on that? A power hierarchy. A what? A power hierarchy. Because it's not just that the rich person has more than they need and therefore can share to the poor, the poor person. The poor person needs and therefore wants to receive from the rich person that brings them together. But it also means that the rich person can withhold the money from the poor person to get them to do something that the poor person has no interest in doing. And this is the idea that everything in our world which is good also has a negative side to it. So Bernie Sanders is just really Jewish? Maybe. I mean, he's definitely really Jewish. I don't know. Wait, what? The whole Bernie Sanders like idea of like distributing everything totally equally, and like everyone well, should give to everyone else to. I, the 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 previous rabbi was once asked which socioeconomic political system is the one that Judaism subscribes to, and you know what he said? He said that the good in all of them is found in the Torah. In the Torah. Interesting. Okay, that that's that that's has layers upon layers of meaning. So that means is that, yes, any time you find a good in something, you, you know, you, there, there is a way which the Torah describes that good in some sense in some way. The question is always all in the, the details. It's not just inherently socialism? No, cause, cause, because there's also good in private, private enterprise. There's good in a lot, and a lot of things have good. Okay? So even when Mashiach comes, there will be people who are higher and people who are lower. And why is that a good thing from the perspective of Judaism? So you can give. That the higher are supposed to be giving, the people that are lower are supposed to be receiving, that brings people together. Now, what's really nice, what if we can make this complex in the sense that one is higher in one sense and one is lower in another sense? Right? That's actually a good way of avoiding the power problem, right? For instance, you know, if one person is richer and one person is wiser, right? Then it's then then you know, and they both value you know the ability to do, use finances to get stuff done and the wisdom to know what to do. Then it turns out that there's a hierarchy of wisdom going one way, there's a hierarchy of money going the other way, and so nobody is really feels that they really should have all the power. That's very ideal. Okay? But Judaism is very into hierarchies, and I cannot state this enough. We are real as, as a religion. Hierarchy is considered to be good, with one notable exception, which is. Power. The only time power is okay is where the other option is worse. In other words, power, power hierarchy in Judaism is viewed kind of like chemotherapy. When is the only time where chemotherapy is a good idea? Cancer. Not just even cancer. Where the cancer, with all, all likelihood without the chemotherapy, would result in death. Right? There's sometimes that you can get treatments before you get to chemotherapy. And there's depending on the stage and all the different, there's different things, right? It has to be pretty severe. So I'll give you an example. Does, because we're, because we're just talking about hierarchy now. Does Judaism believe in physically coercing people to do mitzvahs? To an extent. Well, the answer is that, yes, it's on the books, it's there, like if necessary. Does Judaism consider that if we get to that point that that's a, that's a good way to, that's a, that, that, then we're, we're doing it right. No. no. There's clearly something has, we a lot of stuff has failed and we have to get to the point that that is the best option. Okay? So it's, it's not that it's, not that when I say that, the, it's not that a power hierarchy is forbidden 
it's just considered to always be a negative thing. And sometimes the only way to reverse a negative thing is to use power. But that itself is already considered to be that we've, you know, you, 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 things have gotten to, bad, gotten to a bad state. The state we should, the state you should be aspiring to is that the other hierarchies are appreciated. So just one second. So like the hierarchy of wisdom, the hierarchy of life experience, the hierarchy of, 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 of you know, whatever it is, money, health, all these things, and that those hierarchies are really bringing people together, and as such, there's no need for power. Okay? Now, when Mashiach comes, that's what the world will be like. There will still be teachers, there will still be students, there will still be richer people, there will still be poorer people, there will still be wiser people, there will still be, I don't know, I said less wise people, whatever the word for that is. There will be smarter people and there will be less smart people. There will be stronger people, there will be weaker people. When Mashiach comes, there will still be people who need their groceries carried up to the second flight of the stairs, or the equivalent thereof. And there will be people who will be strong enough to do that. There are people who don't have too much to do and not of time, and people who have a lot of time and not so much to do. And what will all this do? This will bring people together. together. But what won't be the case is there won't be power hierarchies. Yeah? How does that flow maintain a hierarchy? Like, if... Like, how does I was going to give you an analogy. In, I'm going to give you an analogy in a second. Yes. So the only time power hierarchy that we choose power hierarchy <laughs> is when the other options work. But is it accepted, or is it encouraged, or is it commanded? Depends on the situation. There are times. I mean, we do have we do have mitzvahs to go out to war. But the very fact that we have to go out to war means that the world is in a very dark state if we're going to war over something. So yeah. But it's not considered the ideal state of being. Okay. So the, actually, the analogy of this is biological, which is the bodies. All the body systems are hierarchical. So let's just, and my knowledge of biology is rather limited, I'm much more into the physics, but um, let's go with oxygen. Yeah? Which part of the body, in as much as the, we can localize oxygen in the body, where, 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 who has all the oxygen? The lungs. Yeah, you get the oxygen into your lungs, right? So the first place the body actually has oxygen, really has it, is the lungs. Okay, and the rest of the body Wants it. needs the oxygen, <laughs> and therefore, what? It really does need it. Really, really needs it. In that sense, by the way, the brain is not at the top of the hierarchy in that sense. What's at the top of the hierarchy in that sense? The lungs. The lungs, and the brains are at the bottom. In fact. But the, the, brain, the brain is really at the bottom, is really at the bottom, because it turns out that, um, what? Yeah, the, 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 if, if, your, if, your, if your brain, your brain can, your brain, if your brain doesn't get oxygen, what happens? It doesn't do it. It passes. Yeah, it, it passes out. Doesn't work very well, right? But um, your arm. So your arm, though, right? If it doesn't get oxygen, what happens? It just goes a little sleep. Right. So the damage to your brain from a lack of oxygen is much quicker and faster than the damage to your arm. So it turns out, in terms of lacking oxygen and really, really desperately needing it, your brain is like 
really at the bottom of that and the lungs are really at the top and okay. But do you notice, I mean, I don't know in your body, but in most people's body, the, the lungs are not like extorting the brain. <laughs> right? That's not happening, right? Why not? Why is that not happening? Because it wants it to Because there's a sense, and I don't mean a sense necessarily in a conscious sense, but they operate all as part of one whole, right? That's what an organism is, it operates as part of a whole. Wait, wait, that's right. And so here's the, the so this idea is like this: that when a hierarchy is seen as parts of a whole, then you don't have power. The problem is when it's not seen as parts of a whole. How can something that's not that doesn't have like personal desire or drive? Wait, what's my question? So to sense or Don't, not sense? Power. Like how does so I'm going to give you an example. Does that make sense? Tumors do not, again, I'm not saying tumors are some sort of conscious awareness, but tumors do not sense that they are part of a larger whole. And therefore, what do they do? Try to they invade and they take, and the fact that they cause rampant destruction around them is someone else's problem. Until it kills so them. So you're also. saying that is, okay, the because they, but, right. that is a form of power. Yeah. And I don't know. Part, part of me feels like it needs to have like. It could also write. You can write. Like, you could write. In other words, right. And the, I used cancer because that was the analogy that's used actually in the original text. But but all there are all sorts of a whole range of diseases where basically the disease is a part of the body is acting like it's not part of a whole. And that's basically the idea. If you have a hierarchy, but every part of the hierarchy functions as if it's part of a whole then power becomes a non-issue. It's when parts of a hierarchy don't see themselves as part of a whole, but the point is them themselves. Okay? And this is a basic difference between when we say something has, is, is holy or unholy. When it's part of a whole, because ultimately everything is all part of one godly perspective, right? So, grand plan of God. What? Yeah. I mean, holding the sense of like sanctified. Yeah. So, Here's the thing. Let's run through some examples. In Judaism, do we have a, do you have a king, a monarch, who is not absolute power, but close to absolute power? Yes. Okay. What's supposed to keep the king from abusing his power, from the Jewish perspective? The fact that he's the king of the people. And you think, well, wait a minute. Why is that the thing? Because what does it mean to be the king of the people? That he's part of the whole. And the whole is God's people, right? And as long as he sees himself that way, then he's not going to abuse his power. What's supposed to keep the people from rebelling? That they're the king's subjects. And well, isn't that the reason why people rebel? No, when they realize being the king's subject makes them part of the whole. Okay? And this is true. All of the, 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 all of the hierarchies, and we're going to get into hierarchies of souls, but the point thing to understand is when we speak about hierarchies in this, as a good or holy thing in Judaism, it means there's haves and have-nots, influences flowing in one direction, which we, we call that up to down usually. But the influence is never an exercise of power or coercion. Because power coercion means that the powerful see themselves as something separate than the ones they're exerting power over. That's a lack of unity, a lack of cohesiveness. That's, and that's the opposite of unity, which is what Judaism is ultimately all about. So the idea is not to make everybody the same and everybody equal so that we all can get along, but actually everybody should be different there are haves and have-nots that brings everybody together as part of a larger whole. Teaching, family, 
you know, prophet, priests, Hanan, rabbis, mothers, fathers, all of these things have an element of hierarchy. In some sense, somebody is, has something and the other person is receiving something. Yes? So, I, as a general rule, do not enter into like, arguments as to why it should be that way. I just explain what, what it says in the text. And this is, Judaism clearly subscribes to this view, and this is how Judaism understands itself. Now, is there an alternative? Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. But that, that, and as I'm not making a polemic case why it should be this way. I'm just saying that this is how Judaism sees that when God created the world, he intended, and this is what says, elaborate on Kabbalah, it says in the Talmud, that God wanted there to be haves and have-nots, so that that should bring everybody together as one cohesive whole um, in a way that's analogous to the way systems of a body work. But is that, like, is that just man's limited understanding of God and like our, like, our natural desire for power influencing... Well, so that, that's another thing. Is that, that power desire is not viewed to be natural in Judaism. That's a corruption of the human being. There's a whole story in the Chumash about the sin of the tree of knowledge. Pre-eating pre from the tree of knowledge, there was no desire for power. And so you had hierarchy without power. And so the way this is kind of framed is that before this in the tree of knowledge, there was no real notion of power or seeing yourself as isolated from the whole. And once that sin is cleansed, which is the coming of Mashiach, we go back to that. And in the interim, we have a difficult problem with that we kind of have to use power against itself to keep it in check and that's like a delicate balance that sometimes we get right and sometimes we get wrong but that that's you know the world is fundamentally in some states broken between those two points in the totality of history and yeah and a lot of therefore unfortunate concessions are made because we have the problem of power but we have to but the idea is not to wipe out the, what the world is supposed to be but to preserve what the world is supposed to be knowing there's a problem of power but sometimes the only way to check power is more power and yeah, we run into problems. And... I guess it's just hard for me, like when we like understand and interpret Torah, it's coming from a place of power because inha like inherently everyone here oh, does have that. Oh, including myself, which is one of the reasons why one of the reasons why um, one of the kind of checks that we use on that in in, in or one of the checks that God, God gave us in that is that when it comes to Torah, Torah is. Um, Torah's knowledge is what's the word I'm looking for it's distributed what that basically means is that um, this is different, there's a difference between prophecy and Torah but specifically when it comes to Torah is that basically whatever you say only counts for as much as you can back it up and convince everybody else and so what happens over time is that things that have integrity and legitimacy survive and things that are like way out there either break off and become something totally separate or die out. Um, and that's basically how the Torah has been passed down from generation to generation is that, you know, if what you're saying has corrupted motivations to it, um, there's a, a, a eventually um, that starts to eat away at it. 
and that's happened. You know, one of the interesting things is that we've had some very serious debates in Jewish history that in hindsight we can see were just power struggles and that at the time it was big theological issues and like, no, 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 it's just power and therefore it's like everybody just moves on eventually. And then some of those issues, like there were really deep theological divides and you end up with different streams, different practices um, and different perspectives. Now, is that a, like a, is that like, you know, a magic bullet cure that in every situation that removes us from the freedom of the biases of trying to be in charge and having power? It doesn't do that at all. Okay. Um, yeah. And the basic rule is that exile stinks. It's unpleasant. Um, and, um, you know, when you're dealing with unpleasant things, you sometimes um, you, you get it wrong. You use unpleasant measures and you do the best that you can. And so, but you can't abstract it from the idea that God promised that the Torah will, will, will never be totally corrupted and will always be preserved and eventually will bring Mashiach and so you do your best you can. But you're right. There is always that, that question. There is always that thing. And the, the Talmud is quite clear about this. It's not like, um, and, you know, that's why reputation is important. That's why honesty is important. That's why consistency is important. That's why intellectual rigor is important. Um, but also humility and deference and all those things are important. And if somebody tries to corrupt the system, they can get to some degree something, but eventually, you know, there's a kind of an immune system that the Torah has to like fight back, but sometimes it takes time. I mean, you know, there's this, you know, amputated limb of corrupted Judaism known as Christianity that's still around, but it, it did at one point, right? It came out of Judaism and Judaism was like, like deal with that. Really, like, it was a whole process. I mean, a lot of the details of what happened have been lost to us, or been preserved, but that's what happened. And, and so, is it, the, is it, and you know, if a person's going to take this stuff seriously, the, 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 Jew, the, the approach that Jerusalem teaches not to throw out the baby with the bathwater, to, to learn to really appreciate the, the hierarchies that bring people together and to be very on guard for power trying to hijack everything. Is that the safest way? I don't know if it's the safest way, but that's what Jews and teachers, what God wants us to do, and eventually bring about the world that's the way it's supposed to be. I don't think it's the kind of thing that you can, like, I would go so far as to say like this. You, it's not possible not to struggle with it. And it's either intellectually a person has to be struggling with it because they have to like, wrap their mind around it, and come to some level of conviction that's feasible. And if they do that, then they have to actually struggle with it. But it's never the kind of thing like, okay, that's the party line, you put that on the shelf and you move on because that itself will end up giving into power because what happens if you're complacent about things? So we have the explanation that we move on is that then by default, in a state of exile, the powerful end up just exerting power over the powerless. And that's a problem. One of the things that made Chassidus controversial is Chassidus really fought against, the Baal Shem really fought against the idea of the power creeping into the rabbinic hierarchy. You know, the rabbis, they know, and the simple people, they don't know. And so that gives the rabbis power over the simple people. And the Baal Shem was like, okay, yeah, it's true. The knowledge of how to practice Judaism does flow from the rabbis down to the people. That is true. That is correct. But that should not be a power hierarchy. In fact, in order to pre- make it not a power hierarchy, let's work the reverse. Sincerity... And, and simplicity of appreciation of God generally works the other way around, which you can learn a lot more from simple people and children than you can from big theologians and scholars. So if we can both appreciate what we're receiving from the other, then that will help get rid of the hierarchy. That led to some interesting practices amongst Hasidim, that for instance, um, you notice that you guys are, I'm assuming no one told you you should stand up when I walk into the room. Strict letter of Jewish law is that if 
rabbi or someone who's teaching you Torah comes into the room, what you're supposed to do? Why do chassidim as a general don't do that? Because they're afraid that that's going to end up... It's like, in principle, if there was no power element. It was just all about the respect for the wisdom that we find. But it quickly becomes about power. And that ends up having corrosive effect. So other than the greatest tzaddikim, they just don't do it. What about for our parents? Like, the power? It's the same issue with parents. But we are told to stand up. Because parents, there's, I think, I think, different dynamics at play. That's just my guess, but... So I'm not saying that, and the reason why I'm saying this now is before we actually start talking about the specific hierarchy, I just want to be clear that the Torah sees hierarchy is not just an acceptable thing, but actually as an inherently positive thing, minus the corrosive aspect of power, which it sees as foreign and alien to the way God really created the world and only exists because of the sin. Okay. So if you want to understand the time, you see that, that it's time coming from that perspective. That's all I'm saying.